what a career I have making people unhappy. In my career, I could have made people happy, but instead, I chose this. Um, yeah, so put away electronic devices. Um, uh, someone asked me after class, um, why do you think our discussions of the pho photographs have been so uninsightful? <laughs> so uninsightful. And I thought, yes, why have they been so uninsightful? Um, I didn't want to draw the easy conclusion, which is you lack insight. <laughs> that would be the easy one, right? Um, and that might, uh, which is possible, but then my job isn't to teach you to be insightful, it's to teach you to use a certain kind of method uh, that, that yields when properly used results. And so I was just thinking on the way home, um, what's preventing people from learning to do that? Right? Can't it be my deficiencies? Um, and I had a, I was teaching another book in which somebody begins to argue, um, what is art? That's the question that the philosopher raises. And he says, we, all per we know perfectly well what art is. But, so why don't we know, why, don't, why can't we define the term? Because something else that we know is interfering with our knowledge of what art is. The only thing that can stop us from knowing what we already know is something else we already know that we're confusing for the thing in question, right? And what tends to happen, uh, no matter how many times you repeat it, is that anything new uh, tends to be assimilated to what people already know. And so the thing that you're actually trying to get across uh, is interfered with by something else they already know. And I think that's been the case in this, in, in this case. Um, the sort of method I've been outlining in contradistinction to these other methods um, is I keep repeating, not the dominant thing, right? I don't want to fetishize it as a method. It's really just structures of interrogation that we sub submit uh, artworks to, right? That arise from the artwork. There's nothing particularly special. Um, but it is different, and as a result, people um, tend to either think that they already know it, which is an impression that is abetted by the fact that when you point something out in this method, it's obvious, so that they think, that, well, that's obvious, what's the big deal? But, of course, this is a method that is it's devoted to becoming aware of the obvious. Sure, it's obvious when someone points something out to you, and it's very easy to think that when someone points something out to you that's obvious, that you already saw it, but you didn't, right? Um, so if they think, well, this is nothing special going on, then they must think, that what else they're doing? It's like something else they already know, right? Because, it, um, because what else could it be except like something they already know? Uh, and I think we saw some evidence of that in the, in the discussion of the photographs. Um, and, and of course what people said and where they began, what they were talking about. Um, you recall that I've been laying out all sorts of things over on this side. I just want to call attention to different kinds of methods that are cognate to these various philosophical positions and appropriate to them that I think have been appearing in the course of our discussion. Um, there is a method called dialectic. It's a protean method. It's used by many different philosophers in different ways. But roughly what we, they have in common is that um, there is always in dialectic an abstract principle 
an abstract general principle. We have to write this all out. In virtue of which a thing is intelligible. Now, in the systems I've been laying out, that abstract uh, general principle it tended to be a, a, a super sensible one, a platonic idea, uh, some reality beyond appearances, right? But if you think about it, an abstract general principle never actually is apparent to you. You never see one, right? You never see truth. You might see individual things, but you never see an abstraction, right? Um, so it doesn't have to be some sort of supernatural thing. It could just be something in generality that people have abstracted. Such a thing might be, for example, a historical epoch. You never see the Renaissance, and yet it's in virtue of the abstract properties of this thing called the Renaissance that individual artworks are considered intelligible, right? So it is a method by which you start with an individual and you assimilate it, which means you look for the similarities that it has to other things that participate in this abstract general principle. Um, and I think we saw an example of that in a funny way. Um, the man ray, right? Imagine the, the, the man ray, if you all recall, right? Um, imagine in, in the photograph, the, um, the raindrops on the windshield photograph, right? Uh, the, to, directly to your left was a photograph of a, of a girl with red hair with various wounds on her, right? Um, you, could have, you could have, let's say we had discussed that photograph, right? Uh, for the moment, and the hand, right? Well, you could say that they are both intelligible by virtue of their subordinating the woman to the machine. You remember that we heard someone actually say that. She's submitting to the machine, right? Whatever that happened to me. And of course, the, the redhead could be considered submitting to the machine or the camera, right? Or the photograph. Now, what you got there is something that's an abstract general principle called female submission, right? Uh, and, and what you're doing is referring those two photographs to each other, right, to, uh, to that principle, and saying that they're intelligible by virtue of that principle. The problem with that is that no two photographs could be more different, right? What you're doing by, by assimilating that way is missing the thing that makes the thing the unique individual that it is, right? You're starting with a generality of being realer than the individual, and by treating it in terms of that abstract individual, you are losing the individuality of the work. Um, if I say, well, both Man Ray and whatever his name is, submit women to the, to the tyranny of the machine, I really said nothing specific except that there are women in the photograph, which, and I, in fact, I made a big assumption, namely that those, those little abstract patterns of black and white are a woman, right? It's already a big assumption. They may not be functioning in the, in the thing that way. And I've decided beforehand that that's how those things have to be treated. That was off method. That's what I'm saying. And the, the, the lack of insight produced by that the, the type of remark is not because the method is failing, it's because the student is using a different method that they think is this method. And that's one problem. Now, we also had, from the same quarter of the room, uh, an analytic method. What does that do? Well, there is always a physical um, yeah, physical principle, <coughs> let's just say an underlying physical principle in virtue of which a thing is intelligible, right? Um, underlying, I mean, it's actually the cause of the thing that you see, but you don't actually see the cause. Uh, and so
So for example, a student says, your eye goes here, your eye goes there, your eye goes there, then your eye goes here, you know. And this is a common way of talking, by the way. People often talk about where the eye goes, or I don't know who's the eye it is. I keep thinking, I keep thinking of a movie called The Crawling Eye, in which these giant eyes from outer space come down and crawl around threatening humanity. Those eyes go all over the place, actually, but then they got they got legs, right? Or something. They somehow ooze around. Um, but what that student is actually saying is that there is an underlying physical process in the human body such that when it is given this stimulus, it always has this response, right? Um, and that's the basis of the eye goes here, the eye goes there. Um, and that isn't this method either, right? Because if you start to think about the eye, when the eye goes, let's say the eye is attracted to light, whatever, whatever the principle is behind that, or it follows curves, whatever it is, um, those curves and those lights are not specific to works of art, right? I mean, there are curves everywhere. There's light everywhere. Like, if I look at you, my eye goes there. He's wearing white. My eye goes over there. It's light over there, right? My eye's going all over the place the same way it would in a photograph. There's no distinction between works of art and works of nature in that case. Uh, and what you lose there is not just the specificity of the artwork. You lose the specificity of art itself as being different from any other kind of stimulus. Right? Um, and then we had another example of it, which was called an operational method. Um, operationalism, I guess operationalism. There is always <coughs> an operation of the person in virtue of which a thing is intelligible. Well, yes? So are you saying that um, these methods are inaccurate, or just that you don't they're, 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 just not this, they're just not this method. That's all. Yeah, let me, before I get to operationalism, let me say that any of these methods can be practiced more or less intelligently. I'm not, however, saying that they have been so practiced in the course of these discussions. Um, you can go, you can, the method of dialectic, for example, is the method of many great philosophers and critics, and the analytic is, is part of it, fine, but they exist. Um, but they're not the same method, right? And if you think that this method is those methods, you end up saying things that are off method. Uh, and as a result, these discussions in a, in, by the standards of this method lack insight because they are simply reverting back to principles that are not being used uh, profoundly enough to, to yield anything. So what if you used the, all of the methods? Would that be You would get four different intelligibilities, right? And which would be fine, right? Nothing wrong with that. Um, because each of these methods is capable of yielding intelligibility. There's no question about it. You use all of them, it's exactly what I would advise you to do. But this is not a class in using all of them, it's a class in using one of them. Your, your uh, critical reading and writing course was supposed to be a course in using all of these methods, but it was never actually uh, understood to be that way. Um, it wouldn't have been a dialectical method, purely it would have been a Marxist method, it would have been an economic method, it would have been, I don't know, some art historical method. Uh, they, they thought they mistook the content of the thing for the method. That was they always made. But anyway, uh, operation in virtue of which a person, the operation of a person in virtue of which a thing is intelligible. 
Uh, generally, the operation consists in laying down a distinction that you have in your head beforehand and bringing it to bear on whatever it is you're talking about. Um, we saw that, I think, with the distinction of pose and documentary. Was that the other time I did? Um, that distinction may not exist in any given work, right? That distinction was brought, it was considered as a pre-existing distinction that was brought to bear on as if those terms were um, simply universally applicable to all photographs or to all things, right? Depending on how operational you want to get. What makes these operations, what makes this distinction operational distinction is that it's exhausted of all possibilities. In other words, any photograph, let's say, can be treated in those terms. And there's no third term, right? Uh, and it's and the terms have to be mutually exclusive. Even if the thing is both, it has to be both separately. You know what I mean? It can't be both together. Uh, when you get uh, when you get any distinctions that are mutually exclusive and exhaustive all possibilities, then you've got yourself a distinction. You can bring it bear on anything. But the question is, well, I won't ask any questions about it. But but please note, um, <laughs> you better make sure that they're mutually exclusive, or else your thing is going to fall apart. One of the problems with operational distinctions is that they're, they're distinctions are used operationally without understanding quite what the, what's involved in that. Um, for example, just to collapse the distinction of, of uh, pose and, and uh, what is it, documentary. Um, uh, you've all seen advertisements in which male and female genders are are specifically featured. Was that for? Stupid statement, right? Um, you've all seen a, a, an ad for a rum in which a woman is lying on a couch in a suggestive position, right? I mean, everyone says, well, this is this an ideal world in which a single, you know, about the kind of <laughs> And you think, well, they're posing the photograph, right? They're posing her as a woman, right? Or to put it in the, in the classical terms, they're advertising her gender, right? But you are all advertising your gender right now, right? I can tell who's male and female by various cues that you're giving me in the way you dress, the way you sit, the way your hair is, and all that stuff, right? So is this posed or is this document? If I text tap this picture, is it posed or is it documentary? Or is it a documentary of people posing? And if I, if I treat it right, I can treat it as a posed documentary of people posing. How can I do that? I'm a teacher. Right? Allow me to advertise that I'm a teacher. Take that picture. What is it? Right? If I actually do do this, right? Maybe I don't do it quite the same, but then I do do it. I'm advertising my social position, in other words, by all sorts of clues that anybody who walked in this room would know that I was a teacher and you want. It would be very surprising if someone were not were the teacher, not me, in this situation. Why? Not not from knowing anything, just because these are advertisements. So we don't have to treat this distinction as if it was mutually exclusive, right? But it tends to be treated so treated uh, because of the uh, because of the uh, predisposition to, to uh, set up these sorts of matrices and bring them bring them to bear, and that wasn't it either, right? Um, this is you know all these methods again can be practiced well, but what they all have in common is that there's something prior to the encounter with the work of art that is held to be the grounds of the intelligibility of the work of art. This is always there. This, this tends to be eternal, which means it's always been there, right? 
you had eyes before your eyes went anywhere, right? You had the, you had the physiological built-in disposition of the optical muscles to move around in certain certain ways before you looked at the work. And this distinction it always comes in from beforehand, right? Wherever it came from originally, it comes in always uh, as if it existed before the photograph had come in. So these are all prior, and they yield intelligibilities as much as they can on the basis of validity or the invalidity of the prior principle they set up. We try, in, in this method, we try not to have anything prior to the encounter with the work, right? So we see it and try to figure out what the questions are that arise from it. It may be that there's an abstract general principle that is relevant, but it would have to emerge from the work, but its relevance would have to come from the work. It may be that the artist is, in fact, manipulating physical, physiological causes to produce physiological effects. Um, for example, op art. That's, does anyone even know what that is? You know, like a refraction grating, a painting that's a refraction grating, so it goes when you walk around it. Uh, or that thing up at the net with the 1,200 little mirrors arranged in a sort of compound eyeball. Hmm? Concave. Concave. So it's not an eyeball, it's a range kind of radar dish. Uh, those are things in which the optical properties of the thing are directly meant to appeal to the physiological capacities of the body, right? So it would be appropriate to bring that in in those works, but you can't anticipate its appropriateness beforehand, right? Uh, and the same thing here. It may be the fact that the photograph is raising these things. In fact, the thematization of photography in that, in the uh, the soccer practice photograph was really there. It wasn't brought in from outside. Um, and whether we derived it, and I think we derived it from inside, but I think we derived it from inside uh, independent of that distinction. Chiefly, for me, what clinched it was the stop sign, right? Because that was actually schematizing or thematizing the actual shutter closing, so to speak. That, that clinched it as far as I was concerned. And that the photographer had this sort of thing in mind is, is clear, right? But, it, but I don't think it came into our discussions from the work so much as it was projected onto the work. Uh, and that's a problem. So, so there, all right? So we gotta be careful if we're dealing with methods not to go off method. Sometimes, I don't think the discussions of the poems are really that typically off method, probably because uh, you didn't go to school where that would have been, you would have been miseducated. Um, But here, these things are treated as if they were self-evident realities that couldn't be different, rather than simply methods that could be different and yield different intelligibilities. Uh, but let, let me address um, the point about, about exclusivity of methods. Um, the, the Greek word for method uh, is derived from the Greek word for road. Road, okay, road. And really mean a road, right? Odos is road in Greek, and methodos is from that, right? Um, and it's a good it's a good derivation because if you think about it, if you're on one road, you don't see what you would have seen if you were on other roads. What's that expression again? I don't want. I, just just go ahead. Let's just forget about him. Um, if you walk up from here to 50, uh, up to 59th Street on Fifth Avenue, you're going to see a lot of different cities than if you walk up on on First Avenue. 
I mean, you can't walk up on both at the same time, right? That would be too much. Uh, but you do want to see the city, which means you want to walk up all the avenues, right? So the answer to the to the uh, fact that methods um, exclude each other, right, is to practice all the methods, right? Is to be what in other classes I make a big pitch for, a pluralist, right? Is to practice all of them. Um, a dogmatist is someone who only thinks one method is true. A skeptic is someone who thinks that no method is true. An irenicist thinks that you can find common ground between all the methods. You can make peace between methods. Uh, you can only just find what you have in common. Everything will be all right. A relativist thinks that everyone has a method that's appropriate to them. A pluralist says methods are ways of handling reality. You need more than one. Uh, thought is simply an instrument for the handling of problems. Yes? Um, Wait, what was the one where they think they can find a common ground? Yeah. Irenicist. What's the difference between the Irenicist and the pluralist? Pluralist wants to preserve each method different oh, on its own. On its own. Um, Irene in Greek is, is peace, so an Irenicist wants to make peace between different methods. Pluralist says, look, you need all the methods, so the last thing you want to do is get rid of any of them. And the last thing you want to do is make any two of them into one. You want to preserve them in their individuality so that you have as many as you need to handle reality. And because reality is too complicated for any one method, you need them all. Right? And if you take William James seriously, that ideas are tools for handling reality, then you ask yourself, well, how many tools do I need? <laughs> you need as many tools as you can get, right? And the example I would use is dental tools. You ever look at a dental equipment catalog? They're about this thick. There's every different kind of little pick, and they really do use them all, and all those little drawers in the dentist's office are actually full of dental tools, right? Because they need it to handle your teeth. Well, reality is more complicated than your teeth, right? At least, not least because your teeth are only a small part of reality. But I, here I must advise you, take care of them, right? <laughs> um, you have no idea what problems you can have if you don't take care of your teeth. And I buy an electric toothbrush. Okay, but to return to the issue, um, the pluralist wants to preserve points of view, right? Um, so the, the the way I teach philosophy, some of you know, taking my philosophy courses, I always have a representative of one of these methods in the course of the philosophy. Um, not because I'm teaching any one particular thing, but because I'm trying to show that I'm just putting before students the various possibilities of thinking. Now, this is not that kind of class in one respect. We're only doing one method in here. But you will have noticed I have taken pains to say that there are other methods that yield other results. And when I've, when I've uh, disparaged them, I've disparaged their, their inadequate use, not their actual method. And if you had transcripts, you would say, I'd say, you know, those idiots in art history. But when this method is properly used, right, this is the method of Plato, and this is the method of Epicurus, this is the method of, of I don't know who you want to put there, Cicero. Um, I've always pointed out that these methods are respectable in themselves. They just happen not to be the method we're uh, doing in this class. So the question would arise, how is teaching one method consistent with a pluralistic philosophy of education? Because that's what I'm describing here, is a pluralistic philosophy of education, right? Um, how is teaching one method consistent with that kind of pluralism? And the answer is, 
artists have methods too, right? The method of Man Ray is not the method of Cartier-Bresson. The method of Courbet is not the method of Mark Rothko. In other words, by method here, we simply mean mode of being a painter, mode of being a photographer, right? The method of, of, uh, of Issei Miyake is not the method of Bob Mackey, to use the, the two most perfectly opposite and value-free. Value um, so the question becomes, if artists are thinkers, and I don't mean this in the usual, typical, trivial design studies sense, I mean that a great deal of thought and a great deal of, uh, of personal philosophical reflection has gone into the work of every work of art that you see, right? Uh, be it verbal or be it visual, right? Um, if they're really thinkers too, how do we have a, how do, how do we get at their individual way of thinking? How do we see them as different from each other so that we can see how their different way of going about making art is really their way and not some other way, right? How can we access the plurality of different ways in which artists are artists, and painters are painters, and poets are poets? You need a method that calls attention to the plurality of methods as such. This method won't do it. It eliminates differences. This method won't do it. It eliminates differences. It makes things like each other. It doesn't call attention to the fact that different artists have different viewpoints and different methods of going about things. This method the same way, right? All of these tend to lump together but the method that I'm teaching in here keeps separate. This is a method that calls attention to the possibility of plural methods. That's why it's consistent with pluralism. I'm also using a principle to continue with the jargon. I won't go into the whole thing. It calls attention to the, the possibility of there being a multiplicity of principles. The principle here is the work is the work. Right? That calls attention to the fact that each work has its own principles. right? And the universe, so to speak, the philosophical universe attached to this method is things exist in themselves. They don't exist as dependent on other things that are invisible or other things that for some they derive their reality. So that you look at everything as a self-subsistent reality and then you grasp the principle of its being rather than uh, assimilating that principle to some other being or reducing it uh, to some other being or submitting it, to use that magic word, to your own operations, which are always the same if you're using a method like this. Right? So it looks dogmatic that they're teaching one method, but in fact it's a method that calls attention to the possibility of there being more than one method. And as far as I can tell, it's the only method that actually fully credits the visual arts with ways of going about things that are as uh, consistent and, as, and have as much integrity as philosophical methods. Right? I have no problem treating people, treating visual arts as if they're as philosophically as profound as philosophy is. But if we're going to do that, we have to understand, we have to have access to what that modes of being are, right? We have to do it in words because we're taught, we're in class. Um, doesn't mean that words are dominant over images, right? It just means that words are a way of heightening our awareness of what we see. Often we are just simply pointing out things rather than actually naming them. When we name them, we get into trouble sometimes. But that's how the method is consistent with pluralism. And so, so there. All right. Any comments on that? Questions? Yes. Okay. So when you uh, take away any prior knowledge to a method of 
inquiry. How far back would you have to go to reduce uh, that they're to get on account only what is in front of you and relevant? Because you know when we use language to describe something, there's already preconceived notions of the way words fit together to describe something, or the use of color as a knowledge of your experience because people see colors differently, or if it's um, uh, the, the thing of time, the way people see time, it's, it's a very different way of experiencing reality. So, I mean, obviously you're going to find your own rationale for whatever it is that you're going to be inquiring about, but I mean, how would you do it in a way that has a, um, that makes sense without making it so tedious and involved that it becomes ridiculous to even inquire like that? Well, wait, that's, that's two, two questions. <coughs> um, because let me point out that what's tedious to one person isn't tedious to another person. So by your own principle, you have a problem. Um, the question about, you know, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, uh, earlier uh, spiel about the proper audience. Um, the, the thing is to, is to uh, cancel your subjectivity to the extent that that is possible for any individual to do, which I think it is. Um, it is true that words have meaning, but the, word that, the meaning that they have in the poem is determined by the other words in the poem. So prior knowledge of the meaning of something isn't going to help. Um, you've all had experience um, like Marvell's experience in talking to his coy mistress, but it's not going to help you understand what he is saying about his own. So the one answer would be that you decenter the, the experience of the artwork from yourself to the thing, and then you find there's actually a great deal of commonality in experience. Um, and it can never get too tedious for me. Okay. <laughs> well, I think that was the wrong, like that was a side thing, but um, when you say that you find everything, you extract whatever you, everything that you, that defines the artwork is found in the artwork. So you have to extract everything that's to define anything else, you have to use that thing. So would that mean then you would have to isolate each element on its own and then Find the relation, or would you have to do it? Because that sounds fast. Yeah, no, yeah, I don't think we've been doing that. Actually, we haven't been we haven't been starting with an assumption that there are a fixed set of elements um, that we can then name. Um, for example, the element, the, the basic. I was quite a friend of mine said, "What's the basic element of those Yeats poems?" I would say the sentence. Right. I didn't know that beforehand. I don't think the sentence is the basic element of the Marvell poems. Right? With Marvell, it's not the, the sentence structure is not as important, or the fact that everything is all in one sentence isn't important. It's really, a, a, really item, 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 item. The line is more significant than it is in Yeats. Um, so even determining what the basic elements of a work are can't be determined in advance. Um, so we're not trying to reduce to elements. Right? We're, we're essentially just trying to go from what we know by experience to uh, be more aware of what's in front of us. Uh, and that's, tends to be more in terms of relation. There might be works of art that are actually built out of elements. We haven't encountered that yet. So that each individual element would have to be isolated and understood. We, you know, like the Corbet, 
there are no elements. It's, it's completely one thing, right? So we've always been looking at it from the point of view of the relation of the parts to each other and to their whole and to the whole they make up simultaneously. Yeah, we don't want to break things down into an a priori or beforehand prejudice of what might constitute the, the unit of the work. Um, that's the problem with the eye going here and there. Is it, it assumes that, that, that the eye's motions are always going to be the, the component out of which the work is made, um, which, which is an assumption. So there, okay, any other comments or questions? No, do we actually have to get to work? I mean, I have to begin my weekend now. This is it, this is it, ladies and gentlemen, I'm done. Well, not bad, okay, so could we have um, the shades pulled and the lights off?